Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider. The one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moserkatz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. Hey Justin, what's going on? We are here for the second part of our discussion with Dennis McKenna and we are going to dive into a few of the things that he experienced in his life with Terrence that we weren't able to get into with the last part of our conversation and then we're going to talk about some really big ideas and how we can build this relationship between plants and people to be able to navigate turbulent times ahead. I know everybody's very excited to hear the second half of this interview so without further ado let's get it on. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist and today we're speaking with Dennis McKenna on his Kickstarter project The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. We've been diving into some of the history that I wasn't familiar with uh, in Terrence's past and some of the things that you would certainly write about in in the book. One other question I have about the past of both you and your brother is how did you grow up in, in Colorado? What was it like growing up there and did that experience the limitations or advantages of of growing up in Colorado really set the stage for you guys to branch out and be become such I I guess as far as the mainstream is concerned radicals yeah that's that's a complicated set of questions and I don't really know the answer I mean Paonia Colorado you know which in our teenage years we called peyote Colorado uh, you know jokingly was a completely normal town in the foothills of of the Rockies on the western slope. And it was the town my mother was born in and she grew up in. And my father grew up in also in a Colorado town in Leadville, mostly. And uh, it seemed like a pretty normal place. Uh, And certainly our parents were pretty normal people. Uh, At least they thought of themselves that way. And, And yet... I mean, some, I have to say, even to this day, some of the strangest and most interesting people I've ever known came from Paonia. I mean, I used to say it's something in the water. I don't know, <laughs> you know why we were so different than everybody else, because it was a typical small American town. You know, it was football every Friday and, and jocks ruled and it was pretty 1950s conventional, you know, town. Why were we so strange or so interested in other things? We weren't really, we were certainly not in the athletic uh, circles. We were what they call nerds now, I guess, but there wasn't a word for it then. But we were interested in science. We were interested in science fiction. We were interested in, in space exploration at that time. All those things were happening. And I have to credit my dad, you know, with a lot of it. Not that he supported anything that we were doing later on, especially when drugs came into the picture. I mean, he was very anti-drug and very upset that we were into any of this. But he used to bring home... He was he traveled all week. That was his job. He was on the road all week. And he in the fifties he'd bring home copies of Fate magazine. He would bring home copies of this uh, pulp science fiction magazines and these sorts of things. And Terrence and I 
would glom onto these things, which talked about UFOs, paranormal experiences, and you know, ancient lost civilizations, and all this stuff. And we just uh, absorbed that stuff like a sponge. I think that's what made us strange, frankly, was the discovery of science fiction and uh, the discovery of uh, the world of the imagination, and also the you know fate for whatever it was, which still exists, by the way, Fate Magazine. It's still, it's published a few miles from where I'm sitting right now. But they would talk about all this stuff, lost civilizations, aliens, UFOs, purporting to report, you know, factual things. Whether they were or not, I don't know. But we thought, wow, this is this stuff is going on? This is really cool. And that was what motivated it. It's an interesting thing, you know, about my dad, because he was, uh, you know, he was post-war, he came out of World War II, and he met his wife and my mother before he went into the service, but when he came out, like a lot of people that had been in the war, he just wanted to settle down and have a normal life someplace. So that's what he did. He went back to Paonia, and they settled down, and, and they bought a, bought a house and decided to have a family. And he and I used to have discussions about, you know, when I was a, a young teenager, we used to have discussions, and, and he thought of himself as the average guy. He wanted to be part of the herd. Your father felt that way. Yeah, and and he'd have we'd have these discussions. He'd say, you know, Dan, the average guy, meaning me, I'm the average guy, just wants to have a family and a good life and all this stuff. And I used to, we used to have arguments about this because I would say, Dad, you're not average. There's nothing average about you. And why would you even want to be average? I mean, average is a statistical fiction. Why would you want to be like that? You're a unique person. You're an interesting person. What did he say back to you? He didn't get it, you know? I mean, he didn't think of himself as an interesting person, but he was. You know, I mean, he was a pilot. He had his own plane, and that was unheard of in those days. He had interest. He was actually an intellectual, in a sense. He read a lot of books, not just science fiction, but science and, like, popular mechanics and that kind of stuff. His friends were not intellectuals. I don't know if they read anything. His friends were average guys. You know, he wasn't. But he he didn't even admit that about himself. I don't think he ever really understood that he wasn't an average guy. It was like, or whatever was not average about him, that was to be rejected. He just wanted to be known as an average guy, one of the guys, part of the herd. And he was, in that sense. I mean, he was a well-liked person, but he wasn't average. You know, years later, after, you know, he'd spawned these these two weirdos, you know, in, in, in some ways, he has to blame himself. I mean, he didn't hide. <laughs> he didn't hide the fate magazine. Did know? that give you any insight into, I mean, why he wanted to be an average person? And then did you reject that being average because he wanted that so bad for you and, and yeah, himself? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was like, you're not average, and by God, we're not going to be average. You know, yeah, there was a certain teenage, you know, rebellion there. It was like, the last thing I ever want to be is average. If this is your idea of the way it is to be, I, like, totally reject that. And, uh, I mean, I used to argue. I said, Dad, who wants to be normal? Why be normal? What does that mean? It means you're mediocre and not any different than anybody else. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're interviewing Dennis McKenna about his Kickstarter project, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. So in changing direction a little bit, Seth and I took 
our inspiration for this podcast from a lot of your thinking and Terrence's thinking. And the term extra environmentalist is one that you coined. Um, let, let's play a clip from one of Terrence's talks here, and then you can respond. Uh, my brother years ago invented this term. He, he called it extra environmental. He said, this is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra-environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. So the, the term extra-environmentalist is one that you coined, and do you remember what made you think wait, of that wait, phrase? Wait yeah, actually, I have to correct ah. you. If my recollection is correct, it's actually a, a term that Marshall McLuhan ah. coined. And Terrence and I were totally into Marshall McLuhan when he was hot. It really, McLuhan's was a big influence on our thinking. And if I recall correctly, it was him that coined that idea. He either talked about it in understanding media or maybe the medium is the massage. I don't know if you're familiar right, yeah. with those. But what it was, was as Terrence explained it, extra environmentalism is a perspective that you can bring to any situation, a cultural milieu or a problem or whatever. It's the fish out of water perspective. It's like fish are not aware that they're immersed in water. How much would it change their perspective if they could step out of the water for a little and see, well, this is the box we're living in. So the extra environmental perspective, I think, is very useful. It's always like, it's very useful for understanding cultures and cultural phenomena. I mean, I still think that's valid. I still practice it as much as possible. And, you know, play the vegan anthropologist, right? I mean, you, you're the vegan anthropologist. You're, you're from Vegar, Belgies, and you just landed here, and you're studying these weird primates. And if you try to adopt that perspective, I think it's very useful sometimes. I mean, you can't do it all the time, but... That's the idea. That brings new insights, in a, in a way, a new lens through which to observe what is going on. And I think people should try it. Do you have any advice for helping people to develop that extra environmentalist perspective, um, traveling, learning new languages, something like that, reading well, books? All those, all those things really help. Anything that gets you in touch with novelty. I mean, I think, I do think that one of Terence's main insights from the time wave and one that does hold up very well because it's independent really of the mathematics and the structure of the thing, this idea of the ingression of novelty into existence and that's not really our idea i mean alfred north whitehead talks about this and he was a big influence on on us as well his philosophy of of the ingression of novelty was very important in the in the in the uh, sort of formulation of our own thinking about the time wave and these sorts of things so, uh, yes, I think anything that exposes you to novelty, going outside of your culture, new experiences, you know, uh, learning to say yes to things in a certain sense is useful. And actually taking on this role, I mean, it's like, you know, I, I guess as an example, maybe one example that's valid here is uh, you'll be probably surprised to learn that I, I've never been to Burning Man. Uh, have you guys been to Burning Man? No, always wanted to, but I have a lot of friends that go. A lot of friends. And it's very much part of the, the new tribalism, you know, to go to Burning Man. And it's not that I'm against it or anything. I'm just, well, for one thing, time pressures have kept me from doing it. I'm going to go there one of these days. But in a sense, I'm the least burner kind of person that you're going to ever experience. So, you know, encounters. So when I go to Burning Man, I will definitely be playing the vegan anthropologist in a sense. You know, not that I want to. That's just the way it is. I'm an outsider. I'm, in a lot of ways, I'm a 20th century, you know, book, print 
oriented person, not a 21st century digital person. I'm not against those things. It's just this is my cultural and, and personal, you know, historical baggage in some sense. That's this is what I bring to the party. Well, in this new environment, that makes me an anti-environmentalist. You know, so yeah, I mean, one of the problems that I think Americans have largely is they don't go to other cultures, you know, and so that's a big problem. You know, they don't get exposed to these other perspectives, these other cultural perspectives. And so they begin to suffer from the delusion that their way of looking at things, it's is kind of the only valid way to look at things. Uh, you know, it's my way or the highway. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, American culture uh, and largely Western culture has the whole problems with drugs that they have, you know, and what are drugs and what is their place and, and how do we deal with this? You know, I mean, they can't imagine that there are cultures where, yes, these psychoactive drugs and plants exist and people acknowledge it and they use them in, you know, useful, positive, creative ways. They just can't imagine that's even possible. So they ought to get out more is, I guess, what we're talking about. You know, if they want to look for solutions to some of our cultural dilemmas, go to other cultures, expose yourself to novelty as much as you can. You might learn something. You might learn lot. something. Yeah, exactly. you might learn something. You got <laughs> to be open to it. You don't see it on TV. Oh, imagine you that. will not see it. <laughs> We're moving kind of into the future now a little bit, but using a quote from what Terrence said in a speech that I listened to him talk about, he once said that if we had a way to bring a large group of the brightest people on the planet together and let them try to answer some of these big questions about being human. By the way, you are one of the people that he mentioned that he would bring together. Um, I should hope so. <laughs> kind of explorers in, into this realm. What kind of information do you think these people could bring back from the universe to our culture now? And what kind of society would we have to have around these people to give their ideas any kind of credence and weight in forming our, you know, our political structures and our ways of interacting with each other? What things would have to be in place to make these ideas? Well, I think... I think that, I mean, a number of things. This is a really interesting idea, and Terence is not the only person to, to think about this and suggest this. I mean, if you think about it, it only makes sense. Let's get the brightest minds we can together in a room or in an auditorium or in a virtual, you know, environment of some kind. And let them go at it. Let them consider the big problems that we face and try and come up with creative solutions. I would go the next step and I would say, and let's infuse that with a little a little ayahuasca or a little mushrooms or something let to get the conversation started. You know, ideally bring, I don't know, the 50 brightest minds on the planet down to some retreat center in, in South America and give them a couple of weeks and give them a strong dose of ayahuasca to start out and then let the fun begin. It's not that that thing is necessary, but that is something that, again, takes you out of your box for a temporary time. It makes you an extra environmental. And as we know, you know, if you look at the history of psychedelics, many of the insights that have since stood up, scientific and otherwise, have been triggered. Gives you an opportunity to look at things in a new way and come up with new solutions. We're in such deep cultural and environmental shit at this point we ought to be willing to try anything you know whatever works i say you know i, yeah. I think it's definitely a good approach The intelligence that moves within the Czech landscape is very different from that which animates the city of Paris, as the wide sky reflected in the meandering Seine contrasts vividly with the low overcast often mirrored in the Vltava River. The disparity between the broad resplendence of the Parisian esplans or the taste of Parisian cuisine in the narrow alleys or flavors common to Prague expresses a difference in their human histories, to be sure, but also in the very ambience of their respective terrains and the specific fertility of their soils. 
Meanwhile, the contrasting bustle of Rome, the grand bluster of its mythic statuary, and the convivial ethos of its many fountains bespeaks the very different emotional climate of that peninsula and of the elemental forces, the specific goddesses and gods that compose the terrestrial psyche of that land. For each land has its own psyche, its own style of sentience, and hence to travel from Rome to Paris or Barcelona to Berlin is to voyage from one state of mind to another, very different state of mind. Even to journey by train from Manhattan to Boston or simply to walk from one New England town to another is to transform one state of awareness. Traveling on foot makes these variations most evident, as the topography gradually alters mountains, giving way to foothills, and foothills becoming plains as the accents of the local shopkeepers transform in tandem with the shifting terrain. The texture of the air changes as the moisture-laden atmosphere of the highlands instilled with the breath of cool, granitic caves, and exhalations of roots and matted needles opens onto the dry wind whirling across the flatlands, blending the scents of upturned soil with hints of exhaust from the highway, and especially strong in some places, the acrid smell of processed fertilizer. Such alterations in unseen spirit of the land are mostly hidden to those who make the journey by car. Since then, all the senses other than sight are held apart from the sensuous earth, isolated within a capsule hurtling along the highway too fast for even the eyes to register most changes in the disposition of the visible. Still, subtle clues drift into the cabin now and then. The insistent stench of those fertilized fields or the reek from an unfortunate skunk finding its way even into the nostrils well insulated by air conditioning. If we turn on the radio, then our ears, too, may be assailed by the shifting psyche of the land, the percussive hip-hop and blues of the city, opening on to the lilting voices and pluck strings of country music, laced with funk in regions closer to Gotham and more plantative as we roll into more rural spaces. Along broad stretches of the interstate, the wavelengths give way to a saturated array of Christian stations with smooth or gravel-voiced preachers citing chapter and verse with a rhythmic passion exceeding that of the urban rap artists. This too is a register of the mind of that locale. Certainly, there are roads more conducive to sensory alertness than the highway whose rectilinear manicured margins induce a kind of stupor in the speeding driver, a steady trance of abstraction, an onrushing flood of memories and future concerns with few ties to the sensuous present. Yet how much more thoroughly this land would feed our thoughts if we were not driving but rather strolling on foot along these lanes, or even pedaling a decent bicycle, the gusting wind swelling our lungs as our muscles work themselves against the slope. If the automobile isolates our speeding senses from the land, the airplanes in which we fly abstract us entirely from the grounding earth. After checking our bags at the airport, we tighten our buckles and loudly levitate up out of the ecosystem, shaking our senses free from the web of relationships that compose the specific sentience of that place. Only to plunk down, a few hours later, in an entirely different ecology, an entirely different state of mind without experiencing any of the transitional terrain between them, without our nervous system being tuned and tutored for this change by the gradual changes in the topography as we move across it. It's a recipe for madness, don't you think? The way we now force our body to slip from one mode of awareness into another weirdly different awareness without undergoing the slow, perfectly calibrated transition between them. No wonder that we feel dazed and discombobulated after an extended flight, jet lag we call it, dutifully resetting our watches as though it were merely a consequence of entering a new time zone as though it had nothing to do with abruptly finding ourselves in a world whose background colors, shapes, and smells diverge drastically from those where we were a few hours ago. A new time zone? Well, yes, if by this we mean a place whose rhythmic timing or pulse is oddly different than that where we just came from. A zone whose specific dynamism tempts our skin and jangles our ears in weird new ways, crashing our sensory organization, forcing our nervous system to reorder itself as best it can, the sudden strangeness is jarring to our animal body, and especially rattling when we're compelled to adapt to the new circumstance in a matter of minutes. Hence, after flying in jets for several years, many adapt by simply blunting their senses, numbing themselves to all but the most homogeneous facets of a place, taking refuge in only the most fabricated spaces, eating in the identical themed restaurants that now sprout from the pavement in every corner of the continent to meet the spreading demand for anesthetic ease and familiarity. Each airport seems merely an annex of the last airport, each new downtown an extension of the last. By lingering only in the hotels and conference centers where their meetings unfold, they have no need to subject themselves to the unruly otherness of the living locale. Yet, for those who have kept their animal senses awake, for those who venture beyond the made-to-order spaces, traveling more on foot or by bicycle than they do via the jet or the automobile, the journey from one ecosystem into another is precisely a journey from one state of mind into another. 
very different state. From one mode of awareness, flavored by salt and the glint of sunlight on waves, to an altered inland awareness, wherein the cries of those goals become only a vague, half-remembered dream. You are listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're interviewing Dennis McKenna about his Kickstarter project, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. If that kind of society would come into being, you know, where people valued these these psychedelics as sacraments and, you know, use them in that way, what would be the overarching goals of such a society? And how would you harness an entire species working collectively towards some kind of common goal? Because that's what would ultimately happen, perhaps, you know? That's a tough question. Uh, I mean, uh, in the first place... I kind of disagree in some ways with your characterization of, of psychedelics as sacraments. You know, I'm basically anti-religious in a certain sense. The, the term sacrament implies that it takes place within some kind of a religious framework. And that's fine if people want to use it that way. I consider them teachers. I consider them more cognitive tools, ways of rewiring your understanding. Uh, and uh, that doesn't have to take place in a, in a religious context. It's important, I think, that it takes place in a ritual context, you know, in the sense that the purpose of ritual in, in using these substances is to provide a structure, is to provide a vessel in which it can unfold. It's the old set and setting canard, right? And Leary and Metzner and the rest were absolutely correct about that the way to use these things uh, safely and creatively is to provide a appropriate set and setting that's all ritual does it provide it helps structure the setting so but anyway be that as it may the question is can you use these things to sort of catalyze collective transformation cultural and personal transformation and evolution. The goals of, of a collective society as well. I think that you can. I mean, I think that clearly you can. I think that, uh, but it doesn't place, take place overnight, right? It takes place over a period of uh, decades and actually much longer than that. You know, what we're involved in is a co-evolution between ourselves and these teacher plants, these teacher substances. This has been going on for, who knows, a hundred thousand years. I mean, nobody really knows how long humans have known about and used these these uh, substances, but the archaeological evidence is quite a long time, and probably a lot longer than we think. They are just as baffling right now as they were to, you know, uh, Homo erectus, whenever he or she may have encountered that, you know. So they have a lot to tell us, and the teachings have barely begun. We're barely now beginning to understand, you know, the wisdom, the knowledge, essentially, that they contain. Psilocybin was invented, or it wasn't invented, it was discovered, it was isolated from the mushrooms by Albert Hoffman in 1958. That's not very long ago, when you think about it. And if you look at the way that psychedelics have transformed our culture, look at how different our culture is now compared to the way it was in the 1950s. You know, notions that we have now would have sounded just completely whack in the 1950s. You know, the idea of the globalization of consciousness, the guy in mind, the alien contact, uh, you know, all of these things. And, and these are just, these are just, con these are everyday concepts now. Nobody gets too excited, and I—I I mean, they get excited, but I—but they don't say, "Well, what? You know, you need to go take your medications or something." I, I think because people have taken psychedelics and they've seen for themselves that yes, there is a realm of phenomena and understanding that we had no idea. I mean, I mean, if Terence and I, besides putting our ideas out there you know if we made any contribution to this in a substantial way i think that we provided ways for people to grow mushrooms in a very simple way that pretty much anybody can do you know you can do it in your basement or whatever and it's not about 
growing mushrooms to, you know, traffic in them and make a lot of money. It's about growing mushrooms so that you can have these experiences and you can share them with your friends. And that was the original sort of motivation for us when we came back from La Chirera. We needed to learn how to grow these things because people were saying, well, because we wanted to have access to those dimensions, those kinds of experiences, but also our friends were saying, you guys are completely nuts, you know? And we were saying, well, maybe so, but here's some mushrooms. Eat some of these and uh, get back to me with a full report. If you still think we're nuts, okay. But. It sounds like our uh, we're going to have to put a Kickstarter project together in getting enough money to get all of these intelligent people together and send them to the Amazon for one of these La Correra experiences. You know what? That would be a perfect Kickstarter project. <laughs> that would absolutely be a perfect Kickstarter project, and I know just the place. All right. In the decades since we've lost uh, Terrence, so much has changed, so much has happened in this world. Can you tell us how all of these events have maybe confirmed or changed or modified any of your ideas about uh, the time wave or 2012 or any of these topics? Uh, yes, I can. Boy, you guys have great questions, I tell you. Oh, this thanks. is good. Yes, I can. Very interesting to me how most of the events that have you know characterized this this last decade of the, the first decade of the third millennium. Terence didn't live to see all this stuff going on. You know, he died well before excuse me, well before 9-11. He didn't see any of that. He didn't see these enormous Enormous changes that are transforming our world and in some ways tearing apart our world. And yet he wouldn't have been surprised at all. I mean, this is exactly what he predicted. And and I often think he's sitting on the bridge of some hyperspatial ship somewhere and he's very amused because he was right on. And that is why a lot of what he talked about in the 90s, you know, still very much resonates with people. It's still very timely. I mean, one thing that I give him credit for is he was he was prescient. He was ahead of his time. So what he's saying now, even though it's decades old, sometimes a couple of decades old, but it could have been uttered yesterday. I mean, it's pretty much right in there in terms of the, the cultural and, and environmental and every other kind of transformation transformation that we're seeing, the technological revolution. So he wouldn't have been disturbed at all. People who worry about our fate and the fate of the planet and, and all that, and, and we all should be worried, you know, I mean, I'm certainly worried. But on the other hand, Terrence, I mean, I often think if he were here, what would he say? And he would say in we're right with the program, you know, this is exactly the way it's supposed to unfold, you know, and as we used to joke with each other, you know, we'll make the transition into hyperspace, there won't be a twitch on the zillion cosmic dials. Everything is bearing that out in a certain sense. So again, in that sense, with the time wave and the, the predictions of enormous cultural and transformations that it presupposes, in that sense, he was totally right. You could say, you know, he maybe he wasn't right about the mechanism. Maybe he wasn't right that the time wave really describes quantum structure of time. He Maybe he wasn't right about the actual date. I mean, I think there's far too much focus on 2012 and the actual date. I'm very skeptical that very much at all is going to happen on twenty on December 21st, 2012. On the other hand, it's coming apart even faster than that. We may be lucky to make it to December 2012, you know, the way things are moving. So moving into the singularity, let's not get hung up on the, on the uh, nuts and bolts of when is that exact moment. I mean, it's not an exact moment. It's happening. You know, we're in the middle of a slow motion historical train wreck, if you will, that is going to change everything. A lot of things are going to be swept away and a lot of things are going to, uh, you know, to remain. 
hopefully what will remain is the the sort of tools and the people and the minds and the ideas that we need to build a to build a better world you know to learn from the past and and build this transformed world how do you feel that you were able to predict that this you know these coming events so far in the past does that make you feel like vindicated at all does that make you feel sad that you're able to to know that these things are coming well, I guess in a sense it makes us feel vindicated, but I don't really take credit for it. I, I think that we, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a Jungian. Uh, I believe in the collective unconscious, and I think that we got on a, you know, we grabbed a live wire, basically, out there and downloaded a lot of stuff that we can't really claim credit for we were just the conduit for much of this you know in that sense uh, i think that you know we literally stumbled into this thing i mean we had no idea what we were bargaining for when we went to la Chirera. i mean we really didn't we thought we were looking for hallucinogens we thought we were ethnobotanists you know you know we didn't know <laughs> we had an intuition about it we had an intuition because you know, because we called ourselves the Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, you know, as we went in there. And, uh, you know, and we joked about it, and it was kind of a joke, you know. Yes, we're looking for the unspeakable, and by God, we found it, you know. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. But I think uh, we're not alone. I think a lot of people are picking up on this message. That, And that's the thing. I mean, I tell people, you know, I'm a skeptic. I, I think that we are entering a singularity. But I think there's a tendency on people's part to become preoccupied with 2012. And in a way, that's shirking responsibility. It's like saying, well, all we really have to do is wait till 2012. And it'll either all be good or it'll <laughs> be much worse. And, and so it's like we don't have to do much and the thing is I, I think that we do have to do much forget about 2012 let's get to work that's my message we got to get cracking on this thing because it's coming apart a lot faster than than anyone said except perhaps terence and this idea of accelerating change i mean i think it's pretty hard to argue now that change is not accelerating you know it's all moving much much faster and it's hard for our poor uh, neurochemical primate brains to keep up with this you know partly that's why new technologies the the fusing of computer science nanotechnology biotechnology and all that i mean a hundred years from now what is a human being going to look like i mean i would expect that uh, a good part of uh, the human of the future is not going to be made of biological substances. so do, do you see us building a, a symbiosis between plants and, and people in that transformation well I, it's always existed i mean the symbiosis between plants and people has always existed the plants have been you know urging us along and you know fulfilling this teacher function that they do i think the difference is that we're now waking up to it like the indigenous people who have always sort of been the stewards of this knowledge and and the, and the stewards of these plants to them it's like it's matter of fact of course you know i mean it's it's simply self-evident our culture which has separated itself from nature and has these cockamamie notions that, you know, we own nature, that we control nature and all that, we're beginning to wake up to the fact that, no, that's not it at all. You know, nature is calling the shots. I mean, this is what I say in my, very often in what I talk about, you know, almost to the point that it's become a cliche, you know. If ayahuasca delivers any message to me, and I think to a lot of people, it's all about, you monkeys only think you're running the show. You know, we're not running the show. We are players. Uh, we are not in charge. We need to understand that, and we need to get with the program. And the first thing to do, we need to understand that, you know, we're not in charge. And that's the first thing. The second thing, you know, we need to become more humble. We need to get rid of a lot of hubris about what we think we know, because at the, uh, at the end of the day, we don't know shit. We know very, very little about what is really going on. 
I, I guess that's my my sign off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's what we were just going to say. That's a great place to leave it on. And I think that we could continue this conversation. We could talk, you know, for hours and hours and hours. And I know I have many many more questions that I could ask you. But yeah. you know, I think we're going to have to cut cut it short for for now. We can revisit it. You know, we can do this. This Skype works well. Um, I'll be in BC in uh, later in the month, and uh, so we can circle back on this for sure. That ends our two-part discussion with Dennis McKenna on his life with Terrence and some of the big ideas that our civilization is facing right now. And I, for one, was really happy to be able to discuss these things with Dennis because Terrence once said that it was Dennis who coined the phrase extra environmentalist. So Seth, what do we hear today about the name of our podcast? We found out today that it wasn't Dennis at all who coined that phrase. It was Marshall McLuhan. Who knew that? However, uh, Marshall McLuhan was a really fascinating guy, and I did some research, and I still can't find where he said the term extra environmentalist. So for now, I'm going to have to disagree with Dennis McKenna and say that maybe <laughs> he did come up with that phrase. Until Dennis McKenna notice. still is going to be the, uh, the founder of the extra environmentalist until we can prove otherwise. Any of you out there have found Marshall McLuhan saying something about the extra environmentalist or an, an extra environmentalist. We would love to hear from you. How do you feel about our first two-part podcast? This is a this is a first for us. Yeah, this is a first for us, and it's not going to be the last because we have quite a few discussions that are quite lengthy, and we're going to talk about those towards the end of the show. Any takeaways from the interview that you found ex- extremely prescient today? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting how when I listen to Terrence and he just goes on and on about these big, grand things, and it's just blowing your mind. It, it literally is. He's talking about these things that you've never thought of before in ways you've never thought of them before. You sit and think about it, and a lot of it I feel like he just made up like he read really interesting things and he had really interesting experiences and he was able to weave those together but at the end of the day there wasn't a ton of proof for many of the things that he said and so we spoke with Dennis about how many people were critical of Terrence and his ideas and I thought it was really fascinating how Dennis said that he was one of the few people who was truly critical other than the guy who challenged him on the time wave theory because people when they heard these grand ideas it's like their brain just shut down and what do you think that says about people in our society that we're so narrowly focused that when something big comes along that we have to try to wrap our heads around even very qualified people can't even do that well we see that kind of thing every day on the television we have experts that come on and tell us exactly what we're supposed to think and exactly how we're supposed to feel about these news events and you know wars that happen all over the world and these natural disasters we are told on a regular basis how to think and feel making that leap when you're listening to Terrence those same kind of things happen in your brain you are giving over your sense of reasoning to another person to another entity and you're letting them decide what their plan is and what you believe that still is very much a part of our society nowadays yeah if you need an opinion just go to the opinion page and you can pick up uh, shop around for opinions I feel conservative today so I will go and get a conservative opinion from my favorite conservative columnist how do you think that a person would go about waking up this kind of this kind of intellectual stupor that many of us in this in this country and around the world are in today? I think the first thing is realizing that there's a bigger intellectual world out there. The way that we are taught through our schools and our universities hopefully expands our minds because that's the whole goal of education is to understand this broader world. But in many ways, I don't see that. I see our education systems narrowing us down and focusing because the people who founded our education system, and you can go and read about this extensively in the history of Andrew Carnegie and also the Rockefeller Foundation who fund broad educational programs throughout the United States, they adapted their model to the Prussian education system that was designed to get people off of their autonomous farming communities and into factories and to be very narrowly focused cogs in a machine we know education is not the way what do you think is the way i think taking education into your own hands and starting to research things on your own time and under your own motivation 
that's really difficult because it takes a lot of mental power. It's a lot of mental energy to to do those things, to find those books that really you're interested in because we've been a part of these educational systems which have told us that we need to listen to what they tell us. Yeah, and I don't even think they have to explicitly say that. It's just implied because of the authority and the fact that they are institutions and they have these grandiose buildings. But Terrence didn't talk about the things that he talked about and Dennis didn't learn all of these things in school. They learned it through their own experience and their own research and that's what it takes and what really characterizes Terrence and Dennis to me, those two brothers, is that they had tremendous mental energy. I feel sometimes like my mental energy builds even more the more incredible stuff that I learn and, and discuss. And I don't know if it's that way for everybody, but it feels like it was that way for Terrence and Dennis. It's absolutely difficult to be able to go through a long, hard day at work or facing all the challenges we have to face in our lives and then sit down and have deep discussions about broad-reaching topics that could be possibly somewhat offensive or uncomfortable for sensitive people who come at a topic from an ideological position. Exactly. And it's very hard for people to, to take ideas that are foreign to them or never been exposed to before and express them in a dialogue format because emotion gets involved. And when emotion gets involved, your intellectual sense just shuts down. When people start yelling at each other and when people start those heated discussions where nobody's agreeing on anything, you can't get anything done. And that's one thing that I feel like that Terrence is very good at. Some of his uh, lectures where I've heard people asking him questions, he's able to take that heated argument and kind of simmer it down and kind of keep on going with his intellectual thought. In fact, some people ask Terrence, like, what is the role of these people who listen to you and understand your ideas in the future? And he said that it is to spread calm, that the world is going to experience a lot of rapid change and no one can predict how it's going to end out. People can say we're going to experience hyperinflation or deflation or inflation or business as usual is going to occur. The honest truth is no one knows. We're going to look at these trends and try to extrapolate them and project them out two, three, five years, but they're all just false assumptions. They're all based on faulty models and all models are wrong, but some are useful, but all of them are really inaccurate. In truth, we've got to get out there and spread calm and let people know that there's more to the human than we typically recognize. And that has to do with broad-reaching experiences, with the spiritual experience, with the creative impulse, and with all the things that make being alive really special. And those are the things that Terrence spoke about frequently. And building a society that enables people to do that is an absolute possibility as the societies around us start to disintegrate and fall away because they no longer have the money, which was the lifeblood, to continually fund the services that kept them afloat. I think a really interesting part of the story is the fact that these two guys were really young. They were in their 20s. Dennis was 20 and uh, Terrence was 24, both in college, and they took some time off and just traveled down to South America just to pursue these things that they've been reading about and learning about, and they, they wanted that real-world experience so that they could have that hands-on knowledge to pass along to people. This is something they found extremely interesting, and they pursued their interests in so far as to travel thousands of miles away into a place they've never seen before and, and search for these substances that expand human consciousness. Would you kind of compare your trip from North Carolina to Vancouver to the, the McKenna brothers trip to the Amazon rainforest? It's definitely a different world here in Vancouver, but absolutely not as different as the Amazonian rainforest. However, I am going to Europe for a bit, getting out there on my own in the world is absolutely an intriguing thing and something I'm going to be doing. And yeah, it, it can be a little nerve wracking. It's a little nervous thinking about going and speaking, not knowing the native language and navigating these places by maps. And when you start doing that, it starts developing skills in your mind, the way you think, the way you analyze situations, which are unbelievably valuable in your daily life. And for those of you who have not experienced life outside the United States, Highly recommended from the extra environmentalist to get out there and see the world. Learn, go to other cultures, see how different other people think, and just maybe, 
just maybe it'll jar you a little bit and get you to understand a different part of yourself. Yeah. One thing that, that came to my mind when you were talking about that was when you come back from a place, if you've lived in Europe, you've been in another country that's not the United States and you come back to the United States, you, you realize that the United States has a, its own flavor, its own kind of people. And most of those people, when you walk through the airport, are not very good looking. I'm serious. When you're walking through Europe, you can tell the Americans. You can see them walking down the street and you're like, oh, man, that's an American. That is who is representing my country. It's it's not their fault that they're badly dressed and overweight. Whose fault is it, then? It's the culture. That's that's what our whole our whole podcast is about. This culture is sitting up here on top of everybody and reaching in and shaping people. And yes, we have individual thoughts and individual experiences and individual expressions of our biology. But it's that culture that's sitting up there created by the amalgamum of it is culture but how much how much do you let culture shape who you are yeah it's how much do you let culture come down and make every decision for you what point do you as a human being rise above culture and realize that there's so much more to life than just what culture dictates to you i mean there's cultures that are outside of anything you've ever thought about and you could experience that because you are human and you could take that that culture and make it your own one of the best things I think I ever heard Terrence McKenna say was that culture is a cult and that everyone tries to adhere to it and everyone feels that they have to be a part of it, but they're all just being misled. And so one of the great messages that Terrence brings along is that we all have the ability to create our own culture. I think you could compare culture kind of like to a fancy coat or a hat, some kind of garment that you can just wear. And you can take it off if you want and you put it on, on a coat and put on another garment when you travel. When you go into new situations, you can take that culture and you can change the way you appear to people and the way that you interact just by changing your cultural orientation. But I don't think everyone has that ability. I don't think everyone has the possibility of taking their culture off. Only people who have traveled enough, people who have had specific life experiences, and certain people are just more adapted to it. Maybe we called them copycats in elementary school or in in high school or whatever, but people have this empathic ability where they're porous to their world and they're able to absorb the world around them really rapidly. And one of the things that Terrence talked about quite a bit in his talks was shamans and the culture of shamans. And that really was the culture of shamans in these indigenous communities. They had this porous ability to relate to the world around them. And yeah, it might have seemed a little bit strange that you're talking to someone and suddenly they're able to mimic your accent and voice and all of these things or have this empathic connection with you very easily. But those were the people who had the ability to find other intelligences and commune with them and gather knowledge that was useful to their tribe. It's true. When you travel in places where you don't speak the language or you don't understand what's really going on, a lot of times you can simply by observing body language and simply by observing the gestures that people make and the tone of voice that they're using, you can really infer a whole lot that's going on. And what Justin was talking about with the shamans, they would go to places inside themselves or in in, in these states where they would bring back this information and share it with their culture. And they would impart this wisdom to their culture and and help them to advance in many different ways in spiritually and even in like practical matters and healing and sickness. They could bring back that information and help the people around them. So do you feel a responsibility when you come back from a place to impart that experience to other people? Or do you find that those people can't really relate to you because you've had that experience? I think it's a little bit of both. And definitely when I travel, I feel like I absorb the mindset of the locale really quickly. And you can see that expressed through its architecture, the way it's laid out, the values that the place hold all shape it. And I feel like when I travel, I almost have to preach the gospel of that place once I return because I need to absorb the culture and I need to be able to describe it and explain it because that's what's really important about travel to me. However, at the same time, by absorbing those those values, what are my core values? Am I just some completely empty vessel that I just absorb my surroundings and adapt to those? I don't think that's the truth. But if I'm always changing and adapting, can anyone ever get to know me? So these are all really important questions that we have to face. And 
The truth is, the places we're in and the places we go have so much more to do with the ways we think and the way we do things that we don't even question, that we don't even understand. And if more people started to understand the psychological influence that their place had on them, we'd have a much healthier world and a much healthier culture. And sometimes by jarring that awareness, by getting that new awareness that comes from a new culture, from losing all your typical patterns, by getting everything jarred out of shape, it helps you when you settle back into your life to see things in a slightly different way and say, I like the way I did that, or I don't like the way I did that and I can change it. And I think that's a really valuable thing to have. It is, but sometimes, you know, you come back from one of these life-changing experiences whether that is through travel or through you know going to university or something like that and you try to integrate yourself back into that original culture that where, where you came from or where you used to be from and those things don't seem to fit anymore the friends that you had don't seem to relate to you on the same kind of level and your interests don't always match up the same way either and that's something that is sometimes a little bit hard to deal with and can be very disconcerting for people it forces them to look further inside themselves to figure out these changes and to understand where they have gone inside themselves. And sometimes relationships can be hard to maintain with this new persona you brought back and that can be very disconcerting to a lot of people because it's like, you know, I thought I had all these friends but I don't relate to them in the same way anymore or, you know, time changes people. But it's also a process of detribalization, which is what Joseph Campbell spoke about. Detribalization is where you have this tribe and you have this mindset of the tribe. You carry that with you up into, until your adult life. And some people carry it further than that. But every so often you come into contact with another tribe, with another culture, with another mindset. And then you have to fight that and you have to reconcile your views with the views of that other tribe. And so you go through this process of detribalization where you have to move out of that mindset. And it's almost like a birthing process. It can be really tumultuous, really hard to go through for some people. Some people it happens gradually over a period of time. Some people it happens rapidly all of a sudden. But eventually you start to define who you are as a person. And the only way you can do that is through detribalizing. Changing cultures is something that's very difficult for people. And that's why a lot of people choose not to do that. And they choose not to embrace those cultures because thinking these large thoughts is very disconcerting. And that kind of brings us back to to where we were with Dennis and his idea of waking up from this intellectual quagmire that news media has brought us and our culture instills in us at a young age. And maybe with these kind of discussions, we can kind of start waking people up and kind of start helping them to understand that culture is indeed just an application that you run on top of your human biological operating system. You got it. And that will close out our episode for today. Hopefully you've enjoyed our two-part discussion with Dennis McKenna. I know that I have really enjoyed it. Uh, any, any thoughts, Seth? I was just extremely ecstatic when you told me that we were interviewing Dennis McKenna. And I am still trying to get over the fact that Dennis McKenna now knows who I am. Yeah, I, I donated to his Kickstarter campaign, which is, is called The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And I encourage all of you who have been influenced anyway by the McKenna brothers or Dennis McKenna himself to go out there and donate to his, his Kickstarter campaign because, you know, who doesn't want to learn more about the bard that was Terrence McKenna? It's an incredible and fascinating story. And even if you've had no previous connection to Terrence or Dennis before, I absolutely feel that you've probably heard something that has sparked your interest and you'll go and look into these two guys. And if you want to share your interest with us, you can check us out at www.extraenvironmentalist.com. Go uh, to our Facebook page and like us there. Share these episodes with your friends and your family. And, you know, feel free to leave us a voicemail. So stay tuned for future episodes of the Extra Environmentalist podcast. We've got a discussion with Chief Technology Editor at The Atlantic, Alexis Madrigal, on his book, Powering the Dream, the History of Green Technologies. It's a fascinating tale of how technology influences society and how our societies have changed in regards to technology. And then after that, we'll have some really fascinating discussions about banking and society and finance and investments structures for this new world that we're entering into where the rules of finance and the games 
that used to occur no longer happen by the same rules. And so stay tuned to future episodes. We've got a lot coming your way. I think the best thing to do is to send us out with a bit of Terrence as he talks about media and the importance of creating media. We need to produce, not consume media. The media is a huge issue. You can't escape it. So what are you going to do about it? The only solution is to drive it, to take charge. Otherwise, you will be poisoned by it. And, and as more and more people are waking up to this, essentially we are seeing, I think, a, a huge artistic revolution, a revolution in values that reaches into science, that reaches into politics, that reaches into every aspect of life, but that is coming from the imagination.